You may be seated. Uh, that song is that song will preach. That's nice, and I'm hoping I'm, I'm sensing that we're all learning to sing. I, I'm just thinking about we don't talk about it a lot, but how God has given us this opportunity to like come into a safe space and join our voices together in praise and how that process uh, has a sanctifying effect on he's receiving the glory from that singing we're joining with him and it's uh, super powerful so if you are someone who struggles with singing in public I I was there uh, in the past uh, swear like wear a blindfold you know and just sing just let it go This morning we are in chapter 43, where we would have been last week, so your worship guide is not correct. Um, Next week will be in the next chapter. I've had two weeks to ponder and pray and meditate, so I'm hoping for an hour. Thank you. Uh, No, this will be a normal length, but I think it is power-packed, so let's get right at it. Uh, Joseph is in Egypt. You know the story. He's now uh, in the second of the, of the 14 years. He's in the second seven where he's giving out the grains. The brothers had already come one time and left. Remember, they got home and found some, the, the money they supposedly used to buy the grain is still in their sacks, and they were panicked. Uh, some time has passed, and uh, remember, Simeon is still in Egypt in a captivity of some kind, and so they're just kind of waiting till the grain runs out in our passage, and now they're going to go back again. But remember what Joseph required was, if you do come back, bring the little brother, bring Benjamin. So that's the setup for our, our passage. I'm going to read it, chapter 43, uh, just get comfortable. It's a long chapter, but it's an entertaining one. It's a very exciting story. So let's read it together. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, which is Jacob, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. 
Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men, that's Joseph's brothers, were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and wait for it and seize our donkeys. They're really upset about the donkeys. Verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the presents for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest they set before him. Excuse me, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the, the fact that your spirit not only wrote, but has preserved and now brought us to a place where we could understand how this story brings glory to you, could open our own eyes and grow us in our spiritual lives. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that, that we would learn from this passage for your glory. Amen. 
Last week, um, Wilson preached, really I would almost state that the, the chief application was looking to Jesus. Does that sound accurate? Look to Jesus. And, and in doing that and thinking through that, uh, I wanted to sort of continue that theme as I meditated on this passage because I, I want to ask you the question, are you looking to Jesus? Or maybe I would ask it this way, to what Jesus are you looking? It, it's very um, easy to drift into places where we think we're looking to Jesus, when we're sort of looking to man-made concepts, right? We kind of, um, we grow somewhat dim of who he is. Remember in 1 Corinthians, right after that famous love uh, phrase, you know, love is patient and kind, Paul says, you know, prophecies and knowledge pass away, but love will never pass away. And then he says, now we see in part. And he compares it to a mirror. We've talked about this. It's as if we're looking at Jesus, but we're looking into a dim mirror, but then face-to-face. And so the way I want us to approach this passage, I want to ask you this question, are you content with the dimness? As a Christian, are you sort of like, I'm fine. I see the outline. I know what he looks like, and that's as much as I want to see. Or are you longing to see him fully? At the end of that section, he says, well, then you will know him as you have been fully known. And so the gospel proclamation is Jesus knows you fully. The question for us is, do we want to know him? Is that, is that opening our hearts to long for him and to seek him out? Or if not, as, are we just sort of making up some false image of him? Because those are really your two options. My contention is, if we could see Jesus as he is and you could see his love for you, all of us, the more vivid that image is, the more vibrant our spiritual lives would be. Let me just say this, the more vibrant our lives would be because there is no separation between your spiritual life and your real life. Our entire life would be revived as we see him more clearly. And I think we see that in our passage. Um, So we're gonna really have just two broad points, sort of the wrong view of God and Jesus and the right view in our passage. That's my job, is to convince you that these two views exist in our passage. So let's just start with the wrong view. That is the dim view, or even the the sort of made-up legalistic view of Jesus in our passage. And it begins right at the beginning. Uh, I'm going to use this term. um, I'm debating whether to use it. Let me think. Sort of a genie-in-the-bottle view of Jesus. It's, It's, here we are, Jacob has realized they're out of food. And remember, we, we've been saying that Joseph is an image of Christ in the Old Testament, and their need right then is for the governor of Egypt, whoever he is, they don't know his name, they don't know it's Joseph, to provide them food. That's their need. And so they're in a bind. Here's the bind. We're in need, we need food, and yet we don't want to go to Egypt because that guy's mean. He wants us to bring our brother and probably put him into captivity. And so there's this sort of binded view, but yet Jacob, in light of that bind, still says, go and get food to his sons. And it's a fascinating exchange. I I don't know how it fully ties into our concept, but uh, I love when you can just see, even in this ancient text, family dynamics, right? Jacob says, go and get food, and Judah, I don't know if you've noticed, he progressively speaks up throughout the final chapters of Genesis he, of course, is whom Jesus 
will come through his lineage, right? Jo- Judah is an amazing son, and he finally speaks up. Before, it was Reuben, and jo- Jacob listened zero to Reuben. But here's Judah, and Judah basically says, listen, we're not going without Benjamin. You heard the guy. We told you the story. If we come back, we must bring Benjamin. So why are you asking us to go without Benjamin? And then Judah, did you notice Jacob's response? Blame shifting? Why did you tell him about Benjamin? Why would you do this to me? You know, you're like, come on. So then they, that means all the brothers now are speaking up. Listen, this guy asked us questions. We didn't know what he was wanting. And so finally, Judah speaks up and says, here's the deal. You're going to send me. We're going to take Benjamin. We could have been there back twice by now. Let's do this. It's this fascinating exchange. And so then Jacob acquiesces. But I just want to spend a moment on this realization that for Jacob, who knew that part of the story and knew they were out of food, had conjured up this idea that I'm still going to send my now nine sons, because one of them, Simeon's in prison and Joseph's dead and Benjamin's not going. I'm going to send nine to the guy in Egypt to bring back more grain. It's the genie in a bottle. I'm not going to bring to you, God, what you're asking. I'm just going to sort of hope that you'll answer my prayers for my severe needs. But most of my life, I'm going to live how I want to live. That's, an, that's a way, I think you might call that the antinomian view, but it's this idea that I do what I want to do, and then only with extreme issues might I worry about prayer and asking God for help. But I'm not going to give him everything. See, Benjamin was everything to Jacob. In fact, at the end of the passage, after he pronounces his benediction, he says, if you know Benjamin doesn't return and, and, um, and Simeon, he says, then I will be bereaved. And it, you get this sense, it's not like I'm really concerned about Benjamin, I'm just concerned about my own bereavement. And so there's this sense in which I would like to ask us all, what do we not give? Like, what are we holding back in our lives? What is the thing God doesn't get? You're still going to go to him. You're still going to pretend. We're still going to play the game. We're going to show up and do all this religious stuff, but we're not really going to give him what? Is it our, I'm not going to let you have our finances. I'm not going to let you have my, my hobby. I'm not going to let you have these secret fantasies I carry. What are the things you hold back that you're not going to let God have? Because Jesus says that you must hold, you must give him everything or you have nothing, right? That's a call of discipleship. And we find that Jacob is really emulating something that carries all the way through the Old Testament into the New. And that is our tendency to want to hold back. But I want to now move to the other option, which is a, a pendulum swing that happens. When Judah speaks up and Judah convinces him, the other option happens, and that is now instead of just holding back, and treating God like he's just this genie in a bottle and we're never going to really give him everything, we're going to swing the pendulum and become uber religious. Like we're going to do all the stuff. And that you find when Jacob has this brilliant idea. Fine if you must go. If you must take Benjamin and you must go, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to take some gifts. And I know that our modern era has ruined the taste of things. So pistachio notes aren't that impressive. 
I get that. But this is probably like a really amazing gift, maybe. You, you kind of hope, like, I think this sounds amazing, but let's listen to the list. It's just interesting. I just want you to hear it. A little balm, a little honey, like, just a little. Like, I'm going to send you to basically the governor of all f- known food, right? And I'm going to send you with a little balm, little honey, little gum. What is that? You think it's like Big League Chew? That would have been awesome. Joseph's like, that is awesome. Grape, Big League Chew, eaten in 30 minutes. And that's his goal. His thought, what's his thought? It reminds me of Peter in John 13, which I've, I've, if you've been here at any length of time, you've heard three different times. It's this just place I'm just fascinated by where Jesus comes to wash his feet and he is a picture of our hearts. We need to pay attention. When Jesus says, I'm gonna wash your feet, Peter says, no. I'm not gonna let you have that part of me. I don't want you to see the part of me that is dirty. And then when Jesus says, yeah, I am, paraphrased, Peter's like, fine. Then wash my hair and bathe my face and my hands. And, and Jesus is like, you don't need a bath. And what's happening in that exchange with Peter feels like what's happening in this passage. It's the, the request of Joseph is simply bring Benjamin. And Jacob's either like, no, or fine, but I'm going to throw in extra gifts because that certainly isn't enough. There must be a trick. And both of those views hinge around the fact that God is not good. Now, I know it's the governor of Egypt, not God, but the, the, the dreams of Jacob, the, the realization that all the messages that have come back, there could be a sense that God is at work. But for us in the modern era, looking at the Old Testament through the lenses of Jesus, I think we can read our hearts into this and we can see. And you have this quote on the front cover of our worship guide. I'm going to read it a bit and then we'll move into our second point. And I love it because this is Sinclair Ferguson talking about Luke 15 and he says this. I suppose we are somewhat familiar in our personal evangelism with the notion that God is seen by the natural heart as a harsh taskmaster. Remember how Jesus brings this out several chapters later in Luke 19 in his wonderfully insightful expression in the parable of the minas that's similar to the parable of the talents. They're very similar parables, but remember the, the one servant buries it, and when asked, he says, because I know you're harsh. I know you're mean. I don't trust you. You're going to harm me. And so what Ferguson is getting at is that that's our instinctive view. He says, and I say that is the most instinctive view that natural man or woman will have of the character and work of God, that God, in the pursuit of his glory, is out for the destruction of my joy. And I would say this to you, Christian. My guess is when we present Jesus to you, and when I personally, this is something I'm wrestling with with you, so we're all in this, there's, a, there's two errors. One error is, Jesus is harsh, I can't believe it. I think the other error, error and it's, I see this a lot, is no, no, I, I get the gospel. I get Jesus is amazing. I got forgiven. I get all that. It just doesn't satisfy. You see? It's interesting. That's good doctrine. And when I die and meet God face to face, that's the stuff I'm going to bring out. 
But in my daily minutia of life, that is very far away. And what Ferguson's getting at, and I think what sort of permeates our text, is that God wants all of us. He wants you to bring all of us, and you're going to have incredible delight when that affection is steered toward him. Do you believe that? Well, let's look at the four right views then. Those are the the negative views. Again, the summary of the negative views are, I'm not going to give him everything, or if I'm going to play the religious game, I'm going to give him extra stuff because ultimately I'm afraid of being known and being exposed. And then you come to what I would call in point two, the redeemed view that they're about to get a crash course in of who Joseph is. And it has four things. The first, there has to be fear. Do you hate that? Because I do. I'm just going to confess to you, I wrestle with that concept. Because my flesh says, oh, God wants you to be scared. And so I've had to process this concept a lot. But it means, I'm going to say what fear means. And let me first of all locate it in the passage. The, the, The sons have come into town uh, Joseph says, we're going to invite them over the house. They, they, he sends his servant to the, guy, to the sons, and, and the servant explains, we're going to have you come over to the house. And they panic. They just, oh, this is about when we stole the money. Well, we didn't steal the money. And they, and they go into this entire thing, right? And before we go into the positives, I just want you to hear, that's necessary. Like, God is awesome. Now, what do I mean? And this is important. And I'm going to illustrate it with my dog, Pepper, because it just helps. And right now, when I said God is awesome and you're to be afraid, you need need some relief. The other day, Emily and I yesterday walked into the house, and Pepper gets excited, and her tail is wagging. But I noticed that it wasn't equal. She was at Emily's feet most of the time. And... I kind of know that. I come into the house a lot, and she doesn't even get off the couch. So this time, I'm thinking, but this is one of those modes where she would normally jump on my knee. So I decided I'm going to put in some effort. So I'm like, come on, Pepper. Come on. And she would do this. She's at Emily's knees, and she's like, and she kind of looked like, mm, no. And say to okay, this is going to be weird, but just hear me out. Emily talks to Pepper. I don't talk to Pepper. I don't walk in the house and go, Pepper. I don't do that. I just walk and go, hey, Pepper, brought my bag, you know. Emily feeds Pepper. Emily takes Pepper on walks and bathes her. She knows Pepper. Guess who Pepper has a fear for? A healthy respect and awe. My well-being, the little dog would think if she could have consciousness, is in that person right there. And I'm excited. And so when we hear fear of the Lord, please hear this. It's the fact that all of your needs come from and are met by Jesus. There's not one desire you can create or come up with or feel that isn't an ultimate longing for him. Please believe that even if you can't experience that. There's not one desire he can't quench. Every one of our sins are simply misplaced desires, right? We're this is the mud pies in the, we're playing with mud pies. There's the holiday at the beach. And fear is the sense that we're in the presence of the one to whom all glory and honor should be paid, who created us and through whom all things were made, as Wilson preached last week. And these brothers are coming into the presence of Joseph, and they need to feel that way. It's important. 
And that will correct our whole, Jesus loves me, he died for me, and all this. We, we repeat the theology, but it doesn't take teeth. It doesn't sink in because we don't recognize that he is awesome and powerful and glorious. And if he passed by, we would want to melt and want to run after him and we want to be with him. And that's why when you hear the rich young ruler not following him, our response would be, are you crazy? I think you have about two years left, maybe one and a half, and he's gone. Give it all and go and learn and sit. And that's the Jesus who loves you and is inviting you into his home. But, but it does have fear and there is trembling. And I'm just going to say that. Every time we approach him, we're going to have to feel fear and trembling. That's why I think most of us don't pray. We're terrified of that feeling. Why? Is this the time I'm going to be rejected? Is this the moment? And to that, we have the second thing you need. Not only fear, but peace. I love this servant who says, peace, shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God, listen, this is an Egyptian servant. I assume it's an Egyptian servant. He's a, he's a servant of Joseph telling these Hebrew lineage that's going to lead to Christ, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. Peace. So how do we grow into a right view of Jesus? We tremble and we feel the peace pronounced. It's actually three times in our passage more than it's mentioned anywhere else in Genesis, do you feel the peace of Jesus? There's nothing in you that deserves it, and that's okay. That's not a critic. I mean, when I say that, it's not like beat yourself up, though. Maybe It's rather to say it's just received. It, it, it just is. Jesus is giving you his peace. I'm not saying it's not costly. I'm not saying, but we, so often... Pay attention to your, like, I've got to earn it. I've got to pay. I've got to get the, get the gum. Get the little honey, you know. What do I got to do? And it's like, receive his peace. Right? And what would happen if you went from trembling to the reception of that peace in your daily devotional life? The third thing, you would weep over your sin. I think that would invite us to actually feel the weight of our actual sin. Now, Listen, you, if you know me at all, you know I'm going to hit this point because I love it. Uh, this is a fascinating couple of sentences. The fact that the Bible has condensed so much and doesn't give very many details, and all of a sudden we're given extreme detail of what Joseph goes through. So he sees Benjamin. He clarifies that it's his brother. And then it says, overwhelmed with compassion, he leaves. He has to go somewhere else. He finds his chamber and he weeps. Now, we all know what that looks like, but the, the writer seems to want to explain that he, he wept so hard that he needed to then clean up. Like that's, you know, that, that have you, we've all done that, you know. Can you tell I've cried, you know? I mean, his eyeliner, because he was probably wearing Egyptian, you know, was probably running. He needed to clean it. He had been weeping. Why? Because he saw Benjamin. What does that have to do with Joseph? Well, I don't have the perfect answer, but I'll give you a few things to tease out. Number one, it tells us that his brothers have changed. Right? If he, there has to have been a sense of like, did they kill him too? You know, that's, bring him, because I want to know that you didn't just continue this awful stuff you did like you did to me. Did you send him into slavery too? So seeing Benjamin... 
he feels compassion. Secondly, scholars tell us Benjamin's in his late teens. It's hard to tell. That would have probably made him like almost an infant in chapter 37 when Joseph was 17. Because Joseph is now late 30s, almost 40. He entered the service. Thanks, you, Cademan, for checking me on this. He entered the service of the Lord at 30. We know he's in the second seven, so he's at least 37. He's several years in probably because he's already handed out grain. So let's just call him 39. He was 17 in chapter 30. So, so Benjamin is young, maybe in his early 20s. And there's a sense in which Joseph probably empathizes with him like, and feels for him and even maybe wonders, like, what would it have been like? Like, that's the picture of what could have been and just this deep recognition of the harm he has taken. And he has compassion and he weeps. And he's weep over, weeping over the heartache and the pain of life. And I just, I think, you know, we sang last week because it was supposed to be for this week's sermon, did Christ over sinners weep? And shall our cheeks be dry? Isn't that a beautiful lyric? Did Christ over sin? Christ weeps over sin. There's a story of George Whitfield. He's a, one of the great figures of this first great awakening from England, uh, came through to America, um, and he would go on a circuit, and he came to a mining town, and the story goes that these, these people came out to hear him preach. It's crazy, because there was no television or Netflix, so this was it. And, and they're there, and they're just stoic and hard lives and probably need to get back to work. And he's preaching the gospel, and nothing is penetrating their heart. And he's telling them that Jesus loves them and died for them and weeps over them. And finally he says, if you won't weep over your sins, then I will. And he literally begins to cry. I probably used the word wrong literally there. He begins to cry. It goes down kind of into a crouch and is praying and crying and it pro- I, this is in Dallimore's uh, biography, but when he comes up, I think he expected them to have left, and they're there, and he begins to look at their faces, and there's this coal streak coming down almost all of their eyes, like he broke through their stony heart with the fact that he weeped for them. I think we're so afraid of tears. We're so afraid of emotion. Someone somewhere told you you shouldn't have it, and that's a darned lie. Jesus weeps, and he weeps over our sin. And in our passage, Joseph is so filled with compassion, he leaves the room and he weeps. And I'm just going to ask you, do you cry over your sin? When we see Jesus as he is, we'll tremble, we'll feel the pronouncement of peace, but we'll be invited to feel the emotional weight of the harm in our lives, especially the sin we've caused and the sin we commit, knowing we're already forgiven. That's the beauty. Once you're forgiven, once peace has been pronounced, you're now free to move around your heart, Southwest, right? You're now free to move around the chambers of your soul and go, oh my goodness, I know this was harmful. I know this hurt this person. And why can I feel that emotion? Because it's true. Because I can finally stop trying to pretend I didn't do these things. The last thing we need to see about Jesus and we see in this passage is Jesus throws a party. Joseph has thrown this party. He comes back after weeping and says, serve the food. And it's hard. The Hebrew is kind of confusing, but the setup is simply this. The Egyptians are not with them. It's sort of this private dining with the Hebrews. And the reason is legal. Like the Egyptians can't be with them. The servants certainly wouldn't be with them. 
And so you've got this setup where Joseph has a table, and it seems like somewhere separate are the brothers. But they, the, the whole thing ends with, and they drank and were merry. And do you know, if you look at your little footnote, does everyone have that little footnote? Intoxicated. Now, this is not to condone intoxication, but the point is this was a celebration. And something had happened in these brothers that freed them to enjoy the presence of Joseph. And, and this picture of a party in the midst of a famine is a beautiful picture. And I would ask this question when you think about Jesus, do you long to have that time with him? Do we long to be with him? Do you long to go and have the great banquet with him? Honestly. If I'm honest, I'll say I'm ambivalent. I do. I really do. But is there that little thing of like, but will he accept me? Like, and yet I know my theology says he will. But, but don't you have a bit that holds back? How can I have this view of Jesus? It's, it's too good to be true. How can I have this view of God that would allow me to walk through these steps of fearing him and the pronouncement of shalom, weeping over my sin, and even celebrating with others and with him, longing for the Revelation 21, you know, one day, someday, all things being made new, the final feast. How can I do it? And I just want to draw your attention to this interesting thing that I'm thinking you probably picked up on, and we'll end, it, we'll end with these thoughts. It says this, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. Did you catch that? They all got food, but did you hear the way they were seated? The person that was closest to Joseph was the firstborn according to birthright. I think that has to be Benjamin. Because Joseph would have been that person, but they think he's dead. So as far as the brothers know, Benjamin has now filled that spot because Rachel is the line that Jacob obviously favored Though later we know that will shift to Judah. But in the moment, the brothers assume Benjamin. And, it can, and, it, and then the next line seems to be just additional and according to his age. So you have the youngest person who's also the oldest, Benjamin, who's the only non-murderer of the brothers. I mean, think about that. All those brothers are sitting there thinking, we didn't tell the truth. We killed our one brother or we sold him into slavery. And, of course, if you know the room, you know Joseph's like, I'm aware of that. It's me. But there's one person in that room who didn't do it, and it's Benjamin. He's righteous, isn't he? And he sits between them, and they can celebrate. And that's who our elder brother is, Jesus. You see, Jesus was in every way tempted as you are without sin. That means something. Because he did that not to make you go, I didn't sin, why are you? He did it because he's like, you need me to sit between you and the Father. You need my intercession. You need me to provide for you. You need that. And trust me, that's a glorious thing. And I just want you to notice how in chapter 37, any hint that, jo that Joseph was better than them led to envy. And I hear that a lot in Christians. Well, I mean, does God just love me just because of Jesus? And we get kind of caught up. And, and the answer is God loves you and sent Jesus. But yes, it's because you and I must have the righteousness of Jesus 
Nothing will ever produce would earn that righteousness. And so now these brothers see Benjamin and, and they're partying. It's like they finally understood that's a big role to fill. Benjamin can have it and Jesus is the one that did it. We need an elder brother who goes before us and doesn't sin like we did. And we have that in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So what do you do with that? Please, as you process these thoughts, I'm gonna ask you to be aware of the fact that our tendency is to swing back toward holding back from God or trying to produce some form of self-righteousness to, to prove our, our, our salvation. Remember, in the second half, it's all on the basis of mercy and grace. Jesus went before you. We can tremble. We should. We feel his pronouncement of peace. Please, brothers and sisters, hear me. We get to, we get to weep over our sin. And, and we had a quote last week, I think, by Spurgeon. If you don't yet want to do that, pray, Lord, help me feel the weight of my sin that I would weep. And we get to celebrate. We get to emerge in, in the form of a party, and we get to fellowship together. But ultimately, one day, someday, we long to be with him face to face, the triune God, with our elder brother, the one who sits between us. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be without sin. Lord, that we needed that. And who would have ever thought that that was possible? And so, Father, forgive us for inserting heresy and saying, well, he didn't sin because he's God. But Jesus, you were fully man, and you faced every temptation and yet withstood the temptation and went to the cross so that you would be the perfect sacrifice we need. So now, Lord, when we see our sin, we know it's been covered. We know it has no more room in our lives. We know it does not taint us, Lord. We know that we are not our sin, and we can rejoice. We can rejoice over the peace you have pronounced, and at the same time, weep over the harm that we've caused, because you have freed us to do both through your death and your resurrection and your ascension. So Holy Spirit, I pray we would be people who would do this and who would learn to see you not dimly, but longing to see you more clearly and one day see you face to face to be fully known. In your name we pray, amen.